Let's join together in the public worship of God. To begin with, we will read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 53, from the beginning. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Please turn in your psalm books to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and we shall sing from the beginning. This psalm opens up for us the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many things revealed to us in the New Testament. So if you read the Gospels, you will read the facts of what happened in Christ's suffering. He was crucified. He said this. Other people said uh, things to him. But it's actually in the Psalms that we get more detail than we do in the New, Te New Testament. Because what happens here is God by His Spirit takes us under the surface and opens to us essentially the soul of Christ's sufferings, which was the suffering of His soul. And so these are the sufferings of our Redeemer. Psalm 22, 1 through 6. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me forsaken? Why so far art thou from helping me and from my words that glory are? Verse 1 through 6. <laughs>
we call upon the Lord in prayer. O Lord our God, we come into thy holy presence this morning and we bow before thy throne of majesty. Thou art the eternal God. Thou art the one whose name is holy. Thou art high and lifted up and thy glory fills all of the earth. And we do not have sufficient words to render the glory unto thy name, which is due. We own ourselves as creatures. We depend upon thee for life and breath, breath and all things. We cannot think, we cannot breathe, except it be given to us of God. We depend upon thee, O Lord, for a heartbeat, for consciousness, for ears to hear, for mouths to communicate, for eyes to see. O Lord our God, we thank thee that thou art not like us. Thou art independent and self-sufficient. Thou hast need of nothing. Therefore, there is none that we can compare unto God and there is nothing or no one that we can liken unto thee. Thou dost hold the nations of the earth in the hollow of thine hand. They are like grasshoppers before thee. The small dust that is left upon the balance. Lord, even nothing and less than nothing. O Lord our God, give us then due humility. And give us delight in that we have been created for God. We have been given a soul. We are not like the beasts of the fields. Lord, thou hast created us and thou art calling unto us that we would hear thy voice. And that we would be brought into communion and fellowship with thee. Lord, thou dost plead with man as a sinner and... Thou dost challenge us as to the purpose of our existence and our alienation from God. We sing in another psalm, Thou turnest man unto destruction. And yet thou dost say to the children of men, Return. Lord, we do not reserve, deserve that last word. We deserve destruction. We have no claim upon mercy. We have no hope in and of ourselves but that God has determined to save a people in Christ. Lord, Israel were brought low with this thought when they were reminded that the Lord did not love them because they were greater in number or better than any other nation which was upon the face of the earth. But the reason that God loved them was simply because God loved them. We find no reason for the love of God in us. And therefore we stand in amazement this morning and in wonder that thou shouldst ever have set love upon sinners. 
that we would ever hear words like, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. That God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not come to die for those who were worthy in and of themselves. Because if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ would be dead in vain. But Lord, when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We own our ungodliness this morning and we flee to the provision of a Savior who was held forth to us in the gospel. We thank thee, O our God, that there is none that can compare unto thee in power or in justice or in holiness. There is none that can compare unto thee in judgment. And indeed, there is none that can stay thine hand or say unto thee, What doest thou? But, O God, there is none that can compare unto thee in mercy. So that we confess with the prophet this morning, Who is like the Lord, who pardoneth iniquity, and who passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, who doth not retain his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Lord, as we look into the heart of the revelation of thy love, give us eyes to see today. As Christ is set forth evidently crucified among us in word and in sacrament, O Lord our God, cause the eyes of the blind to be open and the ears of the deaf to be unstopped. Make the spiritually lame man to leap as an heart and loose the tongue of the dumb that they might sing. We pray, O God, that righteousness would break forth among us and streams in the desert. Lord, we stand in the midst of a community that knows how necessary water is to life. That if there is a, a dearth of rain, then there's a problem with growth. Everything dries up. Everything dies. But Lord, when the rivers of water of life spring forth into the wilderness, then the word of God tells us that the wilderness shall become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall become a forest. And we ask, O Lord, that thou wouldst open to us these rivers of the water of life. That thou wouldst bring fruitfulness where there was barrenness, and life where there was death. That thou would draw our hearts and our affections to Jesus Christ, and put that ultimate of all questions to us, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Lord, there are trembling souls here this morning. There are those who find themselves in their own paralysis. They express a desire and a kind of interest in Christ. And yet they are held up captive to all kinds of fears. Some of those are biblical fears and some of them are unbiblical fear. 
But yet thy word tells us that fear hath torment and that the only thing that can cast out fear is love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Lord, look upon this people. There are those who are trying to cast out fear with fear and it can never happen. O Lord our God, we pray that as this glorious gospel is preached, that answers and defines the question of love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As that love is set before us, we pray that it would overwhelm the hearts of thy people and that it would overwhelm the hearts of those who halt between two opinions, that it would overwhelm the hearts of those who have come here this morning by mere formality or because they were brought by an other or because they have some religious sentiment, maybe a self-righteous one, we pray, O oh God, that thou would so bless the gospel that it would conquer each and every heart and that we would be drawn with cords of love and with the bands of the man Christ Jesus. Send us thy Holy Spirit, O oh God. We read the word, we preach the word, we sit at the Lord's table, but all of these things done merely in the flesh will avail nothing. But yet in the hand of thy spirit, these are means of grace effectual unto the salvation of thy people. So that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And in this sense, the preaching of the word saves us. And in a similar sense, as we go by faith and look to Christ, who feeds us by the Spirit, so the sacrament continues this ongoing work of salvation in our souls. That the Christ who was given for us on the cross is given to us in the Word and in the sacrament. Send help from heaven, O God. We cannot worship in our own strength. And yet, Lord, thou art worthy of all of our praise. So give us everything that thou dost require of us, that we might bring glory, honor, praise, and blessing unto the name of our God and unto the Lamb who sits in the midst of the throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. And we shall begin to read at verse 10. Sorry, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, <coughs> and reading to the end of chapter 13. This is the word of the living God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace 
and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning in Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts shall therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Amen. This is God's word. May the Lord bless his own holy and infallible truth to our hearts. Now please turn again in your psalm books to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And we sing now from verse 14. Like water I'm poured out, my bones all out of joint do part, amidst my bowels is the wax, so melted is my heart. My strength is like a potsherd dry, my tongue it cleaveth fast unto my jaws, 
and to the dust of death thou brought me hast. We're singing verse 14 through 21, Psalm 22. <laughs> of Zechariah <coughs> and our text is found there in chapter 13 and in verse 7 Zechariah 13 verse 7 and particularly these words awake O sword against my shepherd 
and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. If you know anything about the book of Zechariah, you will be aware that it is not the, the easiest book in the Bible to understand. It presents to us a series of visions. But as with all scripture, it's vitally important that you remember that Jesus Christ is the heartbeat of this book. And so you see him in many ways, sometimes by type and shadow in Joshua the high priest, in other times clearly revealed in the visions that are given to the prophet. For example, if you were to look back at chapter 6, you would find him there revealed as the branch. Verse 12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord. So he's going to build God's holy temple. New Testament terms, he will build the church. And something interesting about this branch is that two offices in the Old Testament that were always distinct, the priest and the king, will merge in this person so that he will be a priest upon his throne. It's a reference to the Lord Jesus. Then it becomes more explicit, for example, in chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And you will recall in the gospel narratives that it is this verse that is fulfilled when Jesus, the week of his passion and death, enters into the city of Jerusalem and men are waving palm branches and casting their garments in the way and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh to us in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna, friends, it simply means save us. Save us now. In the preaching of the word this morning, your king is coming unto you. He's coming in meekness as he is set forth in the elements of his humiliation and death. But he's coming to bring salvation. And the cry of your heart ought to be as you sit in your pew, save now we pray thee, O God. Save me now. Whether you are a Christian or whether you struggle with this whole question of whether you're a Christian or not or whether you know you're not a Christian, that ought to be the prayer of your soul. Hosanna, save now, save now. Well, that's the week that begins the week of Christ's passion and death. But when we move into chapter 12 and chapter 13, we're focusing upon the events of the end of that week, namely Christ's suffering and death. And so you have there in verse 12, verse 10, a picture of the cross. 
And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Would to God that he would give us the spirit of grace and supplication this morning. That we would gaze upon him whom we have pierced both in the preaching of the word. And in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And that we would know what it is to truly mourn for our sins. And rejoice in God's salvation. Because the mourning at the end of chapter 12 is replaced by the joy at the beginning of chapter 13. In that day shall, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Mark that transition. They're mourning every family apart. They're dealing with their sins in repentance before God. And then the prophet says, God has cracked open a fountain so that all of these mourning sinners can come and have all of their sin and all of their uncleanness dealt with. As they do that, verse 2 through 6, they're also concerned to turn away from their sin. And so you see these elements of repentance. They're mourning for their sin. They're coming to the fountain for sin and for uncleanness. And then they're casting away their sins as a people. They're exposing false prophets. They're giving them over unto just punishment. Sin is being eradicated from the land. And that brings us to our text. And I suppose it answers the question, how was this fountain for sin and for uncleanness opened? It was opened unto sinners through what is revealed to us in these words. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. How can a convicted sinner, how can a mourning sinner find forgiveness, cleansing, and peace with God? Well, the answer is here. And may God give us eyes to see it this morning. A fountain has been opened. The way of pardon and peace has been made known. And our text is one of those verses that really brings us to stand upon holy ground. And we take our shoes from off our feet. In one way we want to veil our face from it because it is horrific and yet at the same time it is the most beautiful truth that a sinner who was struggling under the bondage and conviction of his sin could ever have preached unto him our theme is very very simple an awful sword an awful sword. I want with God's help to work through the text. And then we'll state the doctrine. And we'll demonstrate how it relates to what we're about this morning. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
then will make application to those of you who were not trusting in Christ. We'll show what this sword says to you. And then we'll apply it to those of you who are trusting in Christ. So that you might know what this sword says to you. So let's first ask a few questions of the text. The first is, who is speaking? Who is speaking? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. So it's not Zechariah speaking here. In other places in this prophecy, he hears angels speaking. But in our text, it is the Lord of hosts who is directly speaking to the prophet and through him to us. The Lord of hosts simply means Jehovah of the armies so that he's the one who governs the angels in heaven, the one who governs the stars in, in space, the one who governs all of the hearts of men and the entirety of providence in this world. Jehovah, the king of heaven and the ruler of all things. In particular, we should hear the voice of the Father here as he represents the Trinity. And we'll see later how he speaks of and indeed to, in a sense, his Son. So that means this is the same voice that is heard in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ's flesh. When on a number of occasions, audibly from heaven, the Father spoke. And he said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the same voice that spoke to the whole congregation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And gave the words of what we call the Ten Commandments. And after that voice was heard, the children of Israel trembled. We're told Moses did exceedingly fear and quake himself. And the people begged Moses to mediate for them. Moses, go and speak with this God. Because if he speaks any more with us, we're dead. Who speaks? It's the voice of the Lord of hosts. Second question, what does he command? And you'll see very clearly from the beginning of the verse, he commands, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now that's interesting. Children, it's very strange, isn't it? If I had a sword here, I wouldn't ordinarily speak to a sword, would I? Because the sword doesn't have ears to hear me. But here in the image, the Lord of hosts personifies this sword and he speaks to it as though it has ears to hear and he summons it to the work of execution. I want you to consider three things concerning this sword. First of all, its symbol. What does it represent? And to help you, please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 4. Or sorry, 13. Romans chapter 13 and verse 4. 
Speaking of the civil magistrate, Paul tells us, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So you take that back to our text and you will understand that this sword is a symbol of judicial power. And the way God has established society is that he has appointed governments. So fathers, you are the head of your home. And he puts the rod in your hand so that you can discipline your children. And then we have elders and pastors in the church and they govern the members of the church. And he puts the keys of the kingdom in their hand so that they can apply their government. And then he puts the civil magistrate over society and he puts the sword in their hand so that they can execute judgment in agreement with his law. Simply put, they can punish crime up to and including capital punishment in the removal of a person's life. Now back to our text. God has a sword. It's the symbol of his judgment. It's describing how he will enforce his law against the punishers of it, or the, the violators of it. That he will punish iniquity and transgression and sin. And God speaks in a sense to this sword of judgment. And he bids it awake to the work of execution. So you see the symbol of the sword. The second thing about this sword is its severity. It's God's sword. If you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and look there at verse 41 and 42, you'll see God describing this sword again in very graphic terms. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 41. If I wet my glittering sword, children, that means if I sharpen my sword. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. This is a glittering sword. It's been well forged. It's of the finest steel. If we were to talk of it in ancient terms as a long sword, this is the longest of all the long swords that you could ever imagine. If you were to consider its sharpness, it has been wetted or sharpened so much that it's sharper than any other sword upon the earth. You hear of these samurais and they would construct their swords and sharpen them to be so sharp that, it, that if a leaf falls upon the sword, even the force of gravity of that leaf upon the sword will, will cut the leaf. But even that is, is nothing in comparison to this sword. 
And God has sharpened his glittering sword to the work of judgment. We find it again spoken of in Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 1. In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan that crooked serpent and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. We can't go into all the details there but there is at least an image here of God through his son destroying Satan. And how does he do it? He does it with this terrible and great and strong sword. Well, let's go back to the sword that's in the hand of the civil magistrate. That's a symbol of his power. It doesn't mean that the civil magistrate has only or must ever use literally a sword to execute judgment. And when you study the history of nations, you will discover that they've used all kinds of modes of capital punishment. So in Israel, they didn't use a sword. But the civil magistrate executed the sword with stones. So that if, if, if a man was guilty of a capital crime, he would be taken outside the city and he would be stoned with rocks until he was dead. And you think, what a horrible thing. Imagine if that sentence were passed upon me. Or if you come to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ... And Israel is under the government of the Roman Empire. They employed one of the cruelest methods of execution that history has known in crucifixion. Where a man would be nailed to a cross but the nails did not kill him. He was left to hang upon that cross. Until he could not bear up the weight of his body any longer through his nail riven joints. And he would internally suffocate and die. You say, well, well, I wouldn't want to be crucified. If I were to write you one of those sentences today, you would be struck immediately with fear and you will tremble. But what I want you to see here, that all the methods that men have employed for the execution of capital offenders are nothing in comparison to this sword of God. Jesus tells us, fear not him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And when we see this sword awake in Scripture, we, we see the Lord Jesus himself, him, Jesus Christ himself, with the sword in this hand. And when he comes in judgment, he strikes terror into the hearts of men. So that in Revelation chapter 6, they would prefer mountains to fall on top of them and crush them. To hide them from the face of the, of the Lamb who is coming to them in his wrath. Can you imagine that? You live close to the Rockies. Imagine going and standing at the foot of the rock Rockies and wishing that one of these mountains would immediately tumble on top of you. Who would ever wish for that to happen? People who've seen the sword of divine judgment 
bidden to awake against them. And when it awakes, it will not only begin to smite, but it will continue to smite. It is a long sword with respect to its duration, and it will draw out of the souls under its stroke, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. It will not sleep until it finds out every single one of the enemies of God, and it will not cease to smite forever. Because you as a sinner can never satisfy the justice that it calls for. We have the symbol of the sword. We have the severity of the sword. But then thirdly we have the stirring of the sword. Isn't it interesting how the Lord speaks to this sword and tells the sword to awake. Now again, you children and young people, you understand what that means. If he bids the sword to awake, in what state was the sword before he called to it? It was sleeping, wasn't it? And so this sword, which was sleeping, is stirred. Well, that means in a sense that up until this time of which the prophecy speaks... The sword of divine judgment was dormant. And that in this awakening, there is something particularly unique. Now as you know your Old Testament, you will also be aware that this sword was not completely dormant. You see it at various points throughout that history. Indeed, if I could take you back to the Garden of Eden, you see it there when God casts our first parents out of the garden and he places flaming swords at the gate of Eden to keep the way of the tree of life. That sinners who have been cast out of the presence of God, if they now try to, in a sense, get back into the presence of God without a saviour, the sword of divine judgment is going to destroy them. And then you see that principle worked out through time. And you get glimpses of, of the stirring of this sword. Little flashes of God's glittering sword. Take for example the flood. And the sword is unsheathed by way of water in the flood. When God looks upon the iniquity of man and concludes that every imagination of the thought of their heart is only evil continually. And he purposes to destroy the whole world bar one family with a flood. When you see God has momentarily unsheathed the sword. And then it appears again a few chapters later when the cities of the plain have given themselves over to such iniquity that God determines to blot them out. And the sword now appears by way of fire. And fire and brimstone fall from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy all of these sinners and their works. And then you move on to the book of Exodus and the sword again appears when God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And in essence, God says through Moses, you will know me and I'll show you who I am by un, 
sheathing my sword. The river is turned into blood. Frogs, lice, flies, that they're all unleashed upon the nation of Egypt. Working unto that great and final plague were the angel of death with the sword of judgment. Traversed the land of Egypt and drew out that great cry throughout all of the land. Jesus himself speaks of the unsheathing of this sword. Consider Luke chapter 16 where there's a rich man and Lazarus and their lots in life are reversed in death. And Lazarus is carried into the bosom of Abraham and the rich man who in this life had plenty but he did not have God is cast into hell and we see what it means to be under the sword of divine judgment. I am tormented. Christ the rich man. Friends please understand that these were all stirrings of the sword. But they were all lesser stirrings. Than the one that we're reading of here today. This is unique and unparalleled. This is the greatest summons that this sword has ever heard. That God would execute this particular work of judgment. So who is speaking the Lord of hosts? What does he command? He commands this sword, which is a symbol of judgment, to awake in all of its severity... Against the one that it speaks of in our verse. And that brings us then to the third main point. Who does it concern? Well again look at the text. Awake O sword against my shepherd. And against the man who is my fellow. Two very simple points here. The first is the sword must awake against Christ. The shepherd of Jehovah. The sword must awake against Christ. The shepherd of Jehovah. Now you're accustomed to sing Psalm 23. And even the youngest among us know it. I saw a few of them sing it yesterday. The Lord is my shepherd. You know those words. But here it is Jehovah who is speaking. And Jehovah is telling us he has a shepherd. Awake, O sword, says the Lord of hosts, against my shepherd. Against the one that I have appointed to be the shepherd of my people from eternity. Against the one who I sent in the fullness of time to come as their good shepherd. To give his life for the sheep. Against the one whom I have made shepherd. So that he will stand for those sheep. And be responsible for everything that they are. And everything that they have done. Now again this is a very familiar 
image in the Old Testament used for the coming of Christ. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. After the prophet introduces the gospel by the ministry of John the Baptist. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And then he sends forth his messenger, the voice which crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And the messenger introduces Messiah. And who is he and what will he do? He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And he shall gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom. And shall gently lead those who are with young. Then when our Lord Jesus Christ appeared on earth, you know that he spoke very clearly in these terms and he identified himself to be this shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 10 and following. The thief, come, thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is in hiring and not the shepherd, whose own sheep, whose own the sheep are not, he seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is in hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and am known of mine. Friends, don't you see this is the very one that is referred to in our text? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The sword must awake against Christ, the shepherd of Jehovah. But we have to say more. The sword must awake against Christ, the man who is God's fellow. The man who is God's fellow. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. We're considering one, therefore, in these words, who is both our fellow in that he is man and God's fellow in that he is God. This phrase denotes for us equality and companionship with God. Now we've just read in John chapter 10. And sometimes uh, a farmer would, would employ a hireling to look after his sheep. He would never call a hireling by this name. Never. Against my shepherd, against the man who is my fellow. Because this word in Hebrew talks about intimacy of relationship. One that we know, one that we share intimacy with. Like we read of the Lord Jesus Christ who was forever in the bosom of his father. And was daily his delight. That fellow... God could not give this title to anyone who was not God. And therefore we see the intimacy of the son's relationship to the father. And likewise the equality of the relationship between the son and the father. Because he who was eternally God and equal with God was in the bosom of the father from all eternity. 
I said to you at the beginning that we ought to take our shoes from off our feet because the place whereon we stand is holy ground. This smitten shepherd is both God and man. God's fellow and our fellow. Don't we read of him in Philippians chapter 2? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind of humility. Who being in the form of God. And thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Can I summarize that for you this morning in terms of our text in Zechariah? He who was God's fellow humbled himself to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. To become the lowest of the low. So that he might go to the death of the cross. Where this sword would awake against him in judgment. Well the picture is complete. We see what the text is speaking of. I want then for a moment to stress the doctrine that is here revealed to us. And simply put, this text teaches us that God the Holy Father smites Christ the Holy Son for the sins of his people. That is the doctrine that will be set before you as you come to the table of the Lord this morning. That God the Holy Father smites Christ the Holy Son for the sins of his people. That is the very truth that is set before your eyes in the proclamation of the gospel today. It's as though God erects the cross in the midst of the congregation and bids us behold and to study and understand the transaction that took place there for the salvation of sinners. Will you look? Will you look? What will you see? Well, first of all, you will see the smiting Father the smiting Father. Astounding words. The Father bids his sword awake against the Son. But it's not the only place we find language like this, is it? What about Isaiah chapter 53? A well-known portion of scripture, no doubt to you. And we come there to verse 6. And we read those astounding words. The Lord, that is Jehovah, laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
It's another graphic picture. It's as if God the Father picks up all the burden of the guilt of the sins of his people. And he puts it upon the back of his son. He imputes it to his son. And he says to the son, you will answer for all of these sins. And then we move on in Isaiah chapter 53. And the father who lays the sins upon the back of the son now executes judgment upon the son for those sins. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Can you understand the depth of those words this morning? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Not the Jewish leaders, not Pilate, not the crucifixion band who nailed him to the cross, not the religious leaders who ridiculed him and mocked him in his face. No, behind the curtain, if you like, shrouded in darkness, it's the Father, the Father who puts him to grief. The Father who, as he covers the earth, so that in a sense no man may look upon this transaction, now speaks to a sword and says, Awake and smite him, my appointed shepherd, my equal, my son. This is astounding. The one who opened heaven and said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now hangs his son upon the cross and treats him as the worst sinner that ever existed. And says, awake my sword against my shepherd. All justice spare not. Oh, curse, consume him. Oh, vengeance, do not be stayed until all of my righteous judgment is satisfied in him. This is truly awesome. You know, we come to a text like this and we wouldn't be surprised if God spoke to the sword and said, Awake, O sword, against my sheep. We wouldn't be amazed at that. We know who we are. We know what our sins deserve. And indeed, we see ourselves here at the end of this verse, that when the Son of God was smitten, what did the sheep do? They ran. They were scattered. We wouldn't be amazed if God said, Awake, O sword, against these stupid, sinful sheep. But that the Father thrust the sword of vengeance into the soul of the Son. That, friends, is love that we cannot truly understand. 
So the cross is erected. The first thing you see is the smiting father. The second thing you see is the smitten son. When the sword awoke against him, there is a sense in which it includes all of the sufferings of Christ. So Christ endures the contradiction of sinners against himself throughout the whole of his life. Do you ever stop to think about how hideous a thing it was for Jesus to see sin of any kind? Even in his household, his his mother's sins, his father's sins, this is the Holy Son of God with a perfect conscience. Every violation of God's law is like a knife being thrust into the heart of Christ. And then he begins to minister and he is opposed. He is despised and rejected of men. And his sufferings intensify, of course, when we enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what is that in relation to our text? Well, remember the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Suppose if we were to change the imagery there and stay consistent with the prayer of Christ. Is there not a sense in which he's saying, let this sword pass from me? You see, the sword and the cup, they they symbolize the same thing. So there as Christ wrestles in the garden, he knows his hour is coming. The extent of his sufferings is being revealed to his humanity in a way that he had not considered before. And the thought of the cross is so powerful that Jesus thinks that is going to destroy him. Now is my soul sorrowful even unto death. It presses out blood from his pores. Such is the psychological and spiritual agony of the Son of God. So the Father has taken the cup. And essentially he has shown Christ what is in that cup. But to change the image again, what has happened? It's like Jesus has just seen the Father put his hand to the hilt of the sword. And he begins to draw this sword. This wet and this glittering sword, this strong sword, which will devour all flesh. And when the Son of God in our nature sees that bleed, he says, is there any other way? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The Father answers by silence. And Jesus resolves before God that there is no other way. And one of the most amazing things in in the whole of the Gospel account to my soul is that after wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane like that, Jesus gets up And says to his disciples, Arise, let us go hence. He that betrayeth me is at hand. 
Can you, can you consider that? A moment ago, he's sweating drops of blood. He's crying out in an agony. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the father says, there's no other way. And Jesus rises from his prayers. And having seen the father's hand put to the hilt of the sword and the sword being drawn from his scabbard, Jesus goes to the cross and bears his soul to the vengeance of God. That as the father smites, Jesus is not running away from the sword. Jesus, in a sense, is embracing the sword and drawing it into his own soul. He's taking the cup to his own lips and he's drinking it down to the very last dregs because he knows he's the shepherd that has to be smitten for the sheep to go free. As the father smites him, he cries, Eli, Eli, Lamasa, Bakhtanai. And somewhere in that darkness, somewhere in the midst of Christ's misery, the justice of God is satisfied. And he says, it is finished. What does that mean in relation to our text? It is finished. It means that the father who bade his sword awake now bids that sword to sleep. Because it is forever sheathed in the body and soul and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ for every single sinner who will take refuge in him. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slay. Thine heart its sheath must be. All for my sake. My peace to make. Now blessings draft for me. Can you see it this morning? God the Holy Father. Smites Christ the Holy Son. For the sins of his people. Let me apply this to those of you who are not. Christians. And I have a very simple question for you. Are you not afraid? Remember Romans chapter 13? The sword is put into the hand of the civil magistrate to execute vengeance and wrath so that we might learn to fear. And here's the sword of infinite wrath in the hand of the God of all judgment, and it is set to execute vengeance against sinners.
And you sit in the pew this morning, perhaps gambling with your soul. What do you think is going to happen to you if you appear before God in your sins? What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen to you, especially when you see that the Holy Son of God, the beloved of the Father from all eternity, when he appeared before the Father with the sins of his people laid upon him, and the Father said to the sword, Awake and smite, and don't stop smiting until every last farthing is paid to my judgment. What do you think that the Father is going to do with you? Do you think you're going to escape? When Christ never escaped? You need to consider this awful sword in its severity. You need to ask yourself questions when you look at the Lord's table. And I know some of you are struggling with this whole question of assurance. And there's a number of you here who may be the Lord's people and you don't know it. But there are others here and you're not the Lord's people and you know it. And you're going to see a people come to this table. And it's preaching to you the last day. When there will be a division made between those who are Christ's and those who are not. And those who are Christ's are received into the everlasting kingdom because the sword has been sheathed in the heart of Christ for them. But as for you, you will not have Christ. Therefore, you will have this sword. Which one do you want today? Do you want Christ to bore the sword of judgment? Or do you want to say no to Christ again and venture upon this sword for yourself? You need to consider this awful sword. But oh, how you need to consider this amazing Savior. And I can press this fear upon your heart. And you can be struck with a sense of terror and tremble before the judgment seat of Christ. But that alone will not win your heart. You need to look at the smiting of the Son with the judgment of the Father. And by the grace of God, it's that love that has to win your heart. Not just the awful judgment. But the amazing grace and mercy and love of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need to see him dying for sinners. You need to love him for, your, for his dying love. You need to take him by faith as he is freely offered to you now in the gospel. You need to receive him at his word and rest the whole weight of your soul's salvation upon him. Then a word to you who are Christians. We ask the unbeliever, are you not afraid? Could we ask you, are you not amazed? Are you not amazed? As you go to the Lord's table this morning, you know that the sword 
should rightly have awoken against you. And that when you could do nothing to avert the judgment of God, God did something. Something absolutely amazing. The Father set his love upon you. You're his sheep. And he sent his son to be your shepherd. And he executed the judgment that was due to you upon his son. So that the sword of vengeance would be forever dormant against you forever. You see when God comes at the last day, Christ comes in flaming flaming fire taking vengeance upon them that know not God. And the sword proceeds out of his mouth and with that he's going to smite the nations. You will not fear. You will not fear. You will actually rejoice. You will have perfect peace. You will have strong consolation because you know that that sword has forever been silenced by what Christ has done for his people. And so when you go to the table this morning, you don't go hearing the terror of the Lord. You don't come as a confused Christian. And this happens too many times in our Christian experience. We sin and then we think God draws his sword out again. He doesn't. God does not have a sword to execute against you now as a Christian. He has a rod as a father to chasten you in love. When you come to this table trusting in Christ, there is no sword hanging over your head, Christian. None. The sword is sheathed in the broken body and the shed blood that is set before your eyes. You come to this table and can say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord has given his life for me. I have heard his voice and he promises me that I will never perish and neither will anyone ever pluck me out of his hand. Indeed, he goes on to say that at the end of Zechariah, this little remnant, this sheep that were scattered and brought in, what's going to happen? And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call upon my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. That is exactly what is happening here. We're calling upon God. And God is saying, they are my people. And we are saying, he is my God. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord our God, we bless and praise thy name for this unspeakable mercy that has been revealed unto us in Jesus Christ. Seal thy word to our hearts. Grant us faith to rest in the finished work of the Redeemer and to know joy and peace in believing. We praise thee, O God, that the sword sleeps forever to those who are found in Christ. But, O Lord, how that sword is yet to awake against all who set themselves as enemies to the King. Lord, subdue enemies to yourself here today. Reconcile sinners. Give light and peace to those who struggle. 
May the terror of the Lord move them. May the love of Christ draw them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We sing now in Psalm 22, verse 23 through 26, the benefits of Christ's suffering and death. We praise him, and the meek shall eat, and they shall be filled with the benefits of his salvation. Verse 23 through 26, Psalm 22, praise ye the Lord who do him fear, him glorify all ye the seed of Jacob. <coughs> 